Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Elhamdülillah ve salatu vesselamu ala Resulillah ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve men ve ala Nüvene te'alim ve te'alim ve nefil ve intifa' ve tezekir ve tezkir ve ifade ve istifade ve hath ala temessek ve kitabillah ve sunnet Resulihi sallallahu aleyhi ve sellem ve dua edil huda ve delale alel hayr ve tegâ'a ve tillahi ta'ala ve marlatı ve kurbihi ve thubâbi subhanahu ve ta'ala so, Bismillah, we're going to continue on in our Roha, and we said that we're going to begin with a reminder of intentions, and today we're going to look at the intentions for learning, intentions for learning or studying, and fortunately these have been compiled by the great Imam Abdullah bin Ali al-Haddad in a, what could be considered a type of invocation, and that's been translated and that can be passed out inshallah ta'ala um, I believe that we might even have some up there if I'm not mistaken and um, these are it's good to that have a laminated version of that in the pocket and every time that we attend a class is that we pull it out and we remind ourselves of it sometimes that we'll actually say them out loud but it's also good to in of your own self to remind yourself of the intentions just when we actually sit down to um, to sit down and study and so that, that these intentions state and we'll just add a, a couple others is that we intend which is to learn in and of ourselves and we also intend which is to teach other people and one of the things that you'll notice in these first four different types of intentions that Imam Haddad mentions is that it's the idea of that not only do you acquire that knowledge for yourself, but also for other people. And this is because there's a hadith of our Prophet which states, مَنْ جَاءَهُ الْمَوْتِ وَهُوْ يَطْلُبُ الْإِسْلَامِ Whoever has death come to them while they're actively seeking knowledge with the intention of bringing life to Islam, فَبَيْنُهُ وَبَيْنَ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ فِي الْجَنَّةِ دَرَجَ وَاحِدَةِ is it between him and the prophets in paradise is only one degree. So we know that the prophets of all of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creation, whose number is that 124,000, that's not definitive, but that's a, what some narrations indicate, 124,000 prophets. If you just think about that, all people were sent prophets. So how long have human beings been around and where are these prophets? It very well could be that they are buried within a hundred yards of us, and we don't even know, is that every place had prophets. All continents had prophets. Every place that there were people, there were prophets that were sent to all people. In other words, is that we have a very in-depth understanding of world history, and that was probably one of the greatest things that made me become Muslim, was extrapolating the meaning from that basic creedal point that we believe in all prophets and messengers, that you can have an understanding of all of human history as a result. No other religion that we know of in its current form has that, period. It is only Muslims. Uh, all other religions that we know of that have a very localized understanding that they explain prophets that are in that their own books and that they don't have an idea of a world history or a sacred history of prophets, um, at least in the, ex the books in the existing form. Whereas Muslims, this is a basic creedal point that we affirm, that we learn from the time that we're seven, eight, nine, ten years old. 
And it is very, very, very significant to think about that. Think of the implications of there being 124,000 prophets. SubhanAllah. And that all of the centuries upon centuries and thousands upon thousands of years that human beings have existed and that every people in every geographical area were sent a prophet. That is a really, really amazing thing. In other words, is that we have a conception, even though we don't know the details of human history and how it relates to prophets. And even more amazing than that is that all of these prophets brought the same essential message of Tawheed. La ilaha illallah. And this is why, even though that a good portion of human beings and human history have been polytheists, and that archaeologists going back to try to prove this point because this is what we found doesn't mean from our religious perspective, that the origin wasn't monotheism. This is just oftentimes what people that inclined towards and fell into. But the source of religion is Tawheed, is the belief in the oneness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And as uh, our teacher Sheikh Abdul Hakim Murad said, if you think of monotheism as an idea, although mm-hmm. it's a reality, but if you think of it as in the realm of an idea, is that it is the most powerful idea in human history, monotheism. And um, the repercussions of people that are monotheists in what they believe in relation to what they do are the greatest of all repercussions. So, um, that we make the intention to bring life to Islam. And the, the two great ways that a community is brought to life is through knowledge, ilm, and service, da'wah. This is how you bring that a community to life. And in relation to the individual, you add to that dhikr. Knowledge, remembrance of Allah, and then service. And when that is present, you will find life. And so that if you would travel the Muslim world right now, and you to go to places where there are a lot of scholars and there are a lot of classes taking place, one of the things that you will find is that you'll feel like that's, there's life there. Why is it that even in a certain sense, even when it's secular knowledge, when you step onto a college campus in term and you that see all of these people going to classes and learning, it, there's life. It feels like something's happening. You go out of term in the summer, things feel dead. Right? Because this is the way that things are. This is the relationship of knowledge to the, the feelings that we have as human beings. And one of the signs of a healthy community and probably one of the greatest signs, if not the greatest sign of a healthy community, is to see how many gatherings of knowledge are taking place in that community. The sign of a healthy masjid is whether or not there are gatherings of knowledge that take place in that masjid. Every masjid should have gatherings of knowledge because this was the primary place that knowledge was disseminated during the time of the Prophet and for the first generations after that until the development of the madrasa which was the place that was then in it it wasn't always there wasn't always a concept of the madrasa that developed over time and then we have a historical the trajectory that the madrasa took that led into what we could call now a university and this is just a historical fact is that muslims had the first what you could call universities and um, in particular not only azhar there's actually older than azhar is Jami al-Qayrawan in Tunis, Tunisia, and the, um, uh, the Qarawayin in Fez. These are extremely, extremely old, and places where 
that people gathered together to learn not just religious subjects, that was the source, but also it was a place for them to that study many other things from a religious perspective that would be offered as a way of service and of benefit to humanity. Anyhow, so this is a very, very important intention, is that we want to bring life to Islam. It is a prerequisite to bring life to Islam that we have knowledge and that we disseminate knowledge. And the beautiful thing about knowledge is that once that door opens up for you to seek it, oh, is that you can never ever get enough. And then that all of a sudden that will become a priority for you. And many of the other things that you actually enjoy doing is that you won't really enjoy them as much as that when you're actually studying. If you can open up the door for that desire in your heart to love to learn, oh, then you actually got to be very careful. And you got to remember that you actually have kids. You got to remember that you actually have a family. You got to remember that you actually have social obligations. You have to remind yourself in the other sense that you have to be there to help your wife when you have a young child and all these other types of things. And so that, uh, that we should make the intention to bring life to Islam. And that's done through knowledge. So back to these, in, these first four intentions are that in relation to the person itself and then others. To seek knowledge and to teach. And one other important thing here about knowledge if the word that used used here is ta'allum in the Arabic language, um, that connotes not only learning, but also the difficulty that you have to go through to learn. Learning is not easy. And um, there's a famous uh, maxim or the dictum that states, al-ilmu aziz, knowledge is something great. If you give it all of yourself, it will give you part of itself. If you get it part of yourself, it won't give you anything. And um, that this is all types of knowledge, but especially religious knowledge, is that you have to give it all of yourself. And it's really only to that point where you feel like you've try to review time and time again where you just can't review anymore that you've exerted all of your energy that's when you truly learn and it doesn't mean that we disencourage people from learning a bit a little bit here and there no that's important too but when you recognize how great that the affair that you're embarking upon it's very easy for you then to exert yourself in what it takes to get there uh, so that ta'allum wa ta'lim wa nafa that you intend to benefit yourself and then to benefit others. So the number one purpose of learning is to benefit our own selves. And all of the meanings of benefit, but primarily in relation to our deen and the afterlife, and then by extension, the worldly life. And so when was the last time that someone who was entering into the university and studying a particular degree made that intention? Is it whether you're studying something religious or secular, and we don't even have that dichotomy to begin with, uh, we look at it very differently, is that we should make the intention to benefit. Benefit ourselves and benefit others. And you'd be surprised how important the intention is in relation to this. If you go into a particular field, whether it's engineering or whether it's medicine or whether it's law or whether it's something to do with social services or whether it's counseling or psychology or whatever it is that someone is doing, if you constantly make that intention every single day that you want to learn in order to benefit yourself and others, Allah will give you tawfiq. He will facilitate for you 
to sift through everything that you're being exposed to in the classroom and in the books that you are reading, and then to be able to synthesize that and to present it in a way that will be a benefit. The intention is a key and a very important key that unlocks your ability to do that. And it's not the only thing. Yes, you have to also seek advice from people, work hard, study, compare, contrast, research, see how it relates to what we believe. So there's other steps. But the key, uh, the first key to that, that unlocks that is the intention. And then at tadhakkar wa tadhkir, to remind ourselves and others. And you would think that going through these intentions would be very quick, but it's actually really profound if you think about this. You intend a tadhakkar, which is you in and of yourself are in a state of dhikr. Here translated as you're reminding yourself of something. And then tadhkir, you want to remind other people. One of the names of the Quran, it is a dhikr. It is the reminder. A reminder of what? Of the three most important things of all that we can be reminded of. And they are where we came from, what the purpose is of life here, and where it is that we're going. Those three things are the questions of, of, the, of the most important questions of all that human beings have to process. Is that where we came from, what is the purpose of life here, and where are we going? And this is one of the greatest purposes of learning sacred knowledge, or by extension other things, is that to remind us of these three things. And that we also want to, to through a process of learning, to remind other people as well. And then the other one here is um, that al-ifada, what is tifada? And it's very closely related to nafa' and tifa'. And we'd have to do a little bit of research to see technically what is the difference between the two. Uh, you could translate one as benefit and the other maybe as profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, but they're similar in meaning. Uh, but again, to remind ourselves, to benefit ourselves and others. And then, is that we that also want to urge adherence to the book of Allah. So we want to learn to encourage people to have tamasuk. Tamasuk is when you cling to something. Okay, so that if you are hanging from a rope and if you drop, you're going to fall in the water. Right? Hanging onto that rope is tamasuk. You're clinging tightly to that rope so you don't fall into the water. So when you are all in the swing back there and you, it didn't, you stopped right in the middle, you're hanging onto that rope and if you let go, you're going to fall into the little creek out back. Um, that's tamasuk. And that's how we have to be with the Qur'an. We have to have tamasuk with the Qur'an. Always return back to the Qur'an and cling to its meanings. And it's an amazing word if you think about that. Because... It's that what's understood from that word is that in any given time there are going to be things that try to drag us away from the Quran. And that through a very complicated and even more complicated, the closer and closer we get to the end of time process of intellectual warfare, is that we are being drawn from the Quran. And that there's this is the reality of the time in which we live. In any given time, many of those tendencies exist because as long as we have enough and a desire. Desire is one of the greatest things of all that takes us away from understanding of the Qur'an. But then you have compounded ways in our time through applied technology that increases and enhances the ability of the nafs to get a grip on someone. Even more so do we have to cling to the meanings of the Qur'an in a day and age where that it's very politically incorrect to think, to speak about many of the things that we even believe. Um, that this is 
requires us to get back to tamasuk. But this is one of the intentions we make when that we learn is that to encourage that there be tamasuk with the kitab of Allah. And why? Because ultimately everything that we need is in the book of Allah. The entire sunnah of our Prophet is a commentary of the Quran. It's a detailed exposition of what exists in the Quran. Everything that we need is in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it is the greatest gift of all from the creator of the heavens and the earth for us to be able to know how it is that we can fulfill our purpose here in this life, which is to know him. And this is why we have to be very, very, very careful to have sectarian tendencies within our community or in the ummah. Because what happens is, is that people then go to the Quran for the wrong reason. To prove their point right and to prove someone else wrong. Right? This is not the purpose of the Quran. The purpose of the Quran is so the human being can know the path to his Lord. And to attain knowledge of our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is why we have to stubbornly refuse any of the tendencies to use the Quran for sectarian purposes. And to remember that the Quran is here to be a source of guidance. And along with the Quran, we also want to encourage that adherence to the sunnah of our Prophet And then we have two other intentions that relate directly to sharing the meanings of what we learn. So you have guidance and you have good. And you want to that invite people to guidance, indicate them in the proper direction for guidance. And you want to guide them to what is good. And it is only through learning beneficial knowledge that you will be able to do this. And Hidayah is one of the most important things of all. And this is why it is the very first supplication in the Quran. In Surah Al-Fatiha. What do we say? Ihdina. Ihdina is the fi'l amr. It is the command for the verb hada yahdi, Which is to guide. So we say Ihdina as-sirat al-mustaqeem. Guide us to the straight path. So we are asking for Hidayah. That is the first Quranic supplication. That we repeat at least 17 times before praying the five daily prayers. And this is what we want is to be guided in all of our different affairs. And then also is that we have the doors of good uh, opened up to us. And then that the du'as, uh, the intentions of him had that in with. Many of these that you will have seen in some of the classes that we've mentioned before is that you also intend to learn to seek the noble countenance of Allah. What does that really mean? And when we say that, do we have a connection at the heart level with that intention? If someone says, do it for the watch of Allah, do it for the sake of Allah. So you'd roughly translate, but literally, that waj means face, but here what is meant is the essence. The essence. And the gaze upon the noble countenance of Allah is referred to in the Quran when Allah says, That faces on that day will be radiant. Gazing upon their Lord. Mm. Subhanallah. That 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 and this is what is referred to as the that gaze upon the noble countenance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bila kayf hisar as our scholars have qualified that gaze with is that 
In other words, is that it's not done in any way that we normally think gazing is done in this world. Okay? Is that there's, there's no how to it and that there's no limitation. There's no modality. In other words, is that Allah Ta'ala will create in the human being, and He is powerful over all things, the ability to see His noble countenance in a way that is that only He knows, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So how is that going to happen? Allah Ta'ala is that power over has power over all things. If Allah Ta'ala wanted to make our knees see, our knees would see. Our Prophet saw from behind him as he saw from before him. How? Did he have eyes on the back of his head, sallallahu Not eyes like the eyes that we have here. But if Allah Ta'ala wanted to, that have the ability for your back to see, without eyes, he's called Aradukul Shaykh. He has a power over all things, subhanahu wa ta'ala, and he will create the ability in the believer for them to gaze upon his noble countenance. And so, um, and that is of all of the pleasures in paradise, because there's physical and spiritual pleasures in paradise. The greatest pleasure of all is gazing upon the noble countenance of Allah. And that there are, depending upon someone's rank, will be depending upon how often that they gaze upon the noble countenance of Allah. And they say that every time a spouse goes to gaze upon the noble countenance of Allah and they come back to their spouse in paradise, as that they're even incredibly more beautiful. And they go and they come and they're even more beautiful. And, they get, and they're even more beautiful and more. And وَلِلَّهِ الْمَثَلَ is that if you see someone and they're just really excited, that they something wonderful just happened to them when you see them what happens you can sense that excitement in their face and it makes them look better just the fact that they are emotionally happy and so just imagine then that that the emotional side along with the physical changes from the mixture of the anwar the light that is that then that imbued in the human being that as a result of gazing upon the noble countenance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Um, so that's really what we mean by that, is that we don't want anything to come between us and that. And that's an intention that we can make in everything that we do, not just learning. And then, seeking His pleasure. Again, this is one of the intentions that we repeat over and over again, over and over again, over and over again, every gathering, every act, everything that we do, we want to seek the contentment of Allah. And... We have to take everything we do seriously because you don't know where the contentment of Allah will be. It could be in that just helping your mother in the kitchen. It could be in just making room for someone to enter into a gathering. It could be just helping someone park their car. It could be in something really, really small, but the contentment of Allah Ta'ala that lies behind that. And then His proximity, so closeness to Allah. And when we talk about closeness to Allah here, we're not talking about a physical space. We're not talking about a physical space. Is that there could be two people in the room, one person is really close to Allah, the other one is distant as could be. We're not talking about physical space. When we talk about closeness to Allah, what we're talking about is at the heart level, is that to the degree that we experience intimacy with the mentioning of the meanings of the curse. So when you say, subhanAllah, what does it mean in your heart? How close are our hearts to saying subhanAllah? 
When you say La ilaha illallah, what is the degree to which we understand the meanings of La ilaha illallah? In all of the other invocations, to what extent do we have intimacy in reflecting upon the meanings of those invocations? That is what that closeness is, or at least what you could say is that's all you can articulate about what closeness is. The rest is experienced at the heart level and can't be put into words. And then finally, his reward. And um, there's no doubt that uh, seeking reward is an important thing for the various things that we do. Uh, so, again, all of this could also uh, be, uh, these intentions should be memorized and uh, recited and reminded. We remind ourselves of them time and time and time and time again. And that's a summarized version, otherwise there are more de details uh, in which one could go. And um, the Zaytuna College had published uh, a supplication for studying, which is also a, a, a really good supplication. And um, for time's sake, that we'll just read the English. <coughs> this is available. And it says, O oh Allah, bless our Master Muhammad. The opener of what was closed, the seal upon what preceded, the one who with truth makes truth victorious, and the guide to your straight path. May this mercy be upon him and his family according to what his rank and immense degree deserve. O Allah, bestow on us the openings of those who truly know you, and the success of the righteous. O Allah, benefit us from the Qur'an, the judicious reminder. O Allah, teach us what benefits us. Make us benefit from what you have taught us. And increase our knowledge and acceptable deeds. Out of your mercy, O most merciful, those who show mercy. O Allah, there is nothing easy except what you make easy. And you can make the difficult path a form of ease. O Allah, protect us from the evil within our souls. And rectify all of our affairs. There is no God but you. We seek your forgiveness and repent to you. May Allah send mercy and peace upon our Master Muhammad, his family, and his companions. So if you're ever teaching, this is a, a, a very good way also to open your classes. And there's many different ways that teachers like to open classes. At very least, you say, Bismillah, Alhamdulillah, Wa Salatu Wa Rasulillah. Or you could memorize a series of du'as like this. Or that some of the great scholars is that they, in an improv way, speak and rhyme prose and find very creative ways that they're inspired with in the moment to praise Allah Ta'ala and send salawat upon the Prophet But that's kind of a more advanced thing for the people of that particular state. So uh, this is, you'll also be able to find this online. Uh, and um, that uh, uh, being aware of these intentions will open up the door to us to benefit from them. Okay, let's go to um, knowledge and wisdom. Let's read the whole section now. Existing decree is that the world should prosper until its appointed time, 
and only then will God's will for the world cause it to be ruined and annihilated. Since this is the case, the profound wisdom has ordained that most people remain unaware of the realities of things and steer a course away from them. This leads them to build for the world, attend to it, and accumulate its vanities so that they turn away from the hereafter and forget about it. A warning about all this comes in the hadith that says, This world is the home for those who are without home, and the wealth for those who are without wealth. It is amassed by those without reason. Al-Hasan al-Basri said, Were not for the fools, the world would never have prospered. Another of the virtuous predecessors, may God have mercy on them all, said, the son of Adam was created a fool. Were not for that, he would never have been content with only this life. Divine mercy singles out a few servants for perfect awareness, aware, awareness and perspicacity regarding the realities of things. They are the ones who realize those truths and in consequence entirely shun the world and concentrate on God and the hereafter. These are rare individuals few in every time and place. Meditate on this fact as it deserves, for it is precious, and underneath it are matters more precious still, and God knows best. MashaAllah. So, um, Dr. Mustafa titled this section, Knowers by God, which is um, how we would translate, in Araf Billah, in fools. And it's really interesting, when we talk about knowledge of Allah, we refer to it in that sense, you talk about them being arifin billah. In other words, is that their knowledge is by Allah. And so it is that taking away from the self. And that's been a theme of what we've been discussing a lot lately at the retreat and in the last modid and in many of the classes, this idea of futuwa. And it's for this reason that some consider futuwa, spiritual chivalry, to be right before sainthood, wilaya, and part of it is is because it's only when someone's futua, their chivalry becomes complete, is that will there be an incomplete departure from the selfishness of the soul, to where you are entirely concerned about helping other people, and um, that is a prerequisite of becoming of this great rank of closest to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is that you have that move from an egocentric state to where that you are its opposite you are constantly concerned about helping creation and so we refer to them as that knowers by Allah and a lot of the language that relates to uh, the great gifts that they receive that tend to be ways of expressing it that de-emphasize the self and that point to how it comes from outside of them to them so in other words is that there's no claim on their end of it being anything that relates to them. Is that it's as a result of them annihilating themselves that in truth and then being able to receive what comes to them as a result. And so essentially what he is presenting here in this chapter is a very subtle wisdom on how creation works. And he wants us to have a realistic understanding of how to view this world and the various people that lie in it. And there's no doubt that as we that tread through life and we interact with people, 
is that we'll come to various conclusions about how people are and their perspectives and on the world in which we live. And the key is, is that as we interact with people and experience life ourselves, is that it doesn't take us away from the perspective that we know that our Lord wants us to have. And this is not an easy thing to do. The more people that you speak to, the more people that you are exposed to, is that oftentimes we are to some degree impacted by their way of viewing the world. And sometimes that what creeps in at the emotional level will eventually become that something that we then think that intellectually that we've come to rationally, but actually it kind of crept in from that the emotional side of the human being. And he wants to remind us of the way that the true people of Allah Ta'ala that are aware of reality that they see the world. And even if we're not of them, by being reminded that these people exist, it will have a practical value in our own lives so that we can learn to conduct our affairs of this world accordingly. And then we can, that at least through that theoretical understanding, live a life whereby wish that we slowly move towards what is better, what is better, and what is even better. And so he begins by saying, is that had all people been equally intent on understanding the intellectual and factual realities of faith, and the Arabic here is, التحقق بالحقائق الإيمانية والعقلية and so these are very, very important words in the Arabic language. And the root word for it is haq, which is truth. And so when you take it to this form, it's to actualize, it's to realize something within yourself. And so were people to be realized in these haqaiq, the various realities that are imani and aqliya, that relate to faith but also relate to that the intellect is that there were that would result in a certain type of behavior now the reality is is that the vast majority of people and this is why this word this particle in the arabic language low is used here it's a hard of an empty not an empty not it's like you would say that were you to have come to my house i would have served you the very best coffee okay you didn't come to my house so you didn't get the very best coffee so it's a, a way that he's saying is that were this to be the case, that it would have happened, but it's not the case. The vast majority of people are not in that state. But were people to have the highest degree of realized faith within themselves and to see things very clearly and to have actualized the intellect in terms of what it's supposed to that know and perceive, they would have attended wholly and sincerely to their life to come. In other words, they would not have wasted a single moment in the dunya, in this world, for the world insofar as it is from this world. They would have seen it rather as an opportunity for them to that prepare for the afterlife. Now, that's the ideal. And where are we from that? Okay, we're far off of that. But the purpose of these books, first and foremost, is to humble us. Because if you're not humble, then how are you going to that move forward? If you don't realize that where you're at and how much that you have to go, you're not going to be able to set out to do anything. So the purpose of this book, again, is not to be like, he's talking about something that is way above me. 
No, that's precisely, it's good to be humbled. And our response should not be a nafsi response. The nafsi response to being humbled is the response of the ego, that is, is to like give up. Oh, I can't be like that anyway, so why would I even try? No. The heart response to this is, okay, I'm not there, but I believe that. And you know what? I'm going to take the first step towards that. And tomorrow, I'm going to take the next step. And after that, I'm going to take the next step. And I'm going to arrange my life and to make decisions to put myself in a position where every day of my life that I'm doing better and doing better. I'm going to choose very carefully the type of people that I'm around. I want to be around people that are a good influence on me. And if they're not that close to me, I'm going to seek them out. And I'm going to put myself with them. Then I'm going to choose this job as opposed to, which is a lesser paying job over the higher paying job because I believe it's better for my afterlife. And people that start making decisions like this carefully, doing what they know is still within the, their ability so they don't completely fall off, as it will find amazing doors that open up to them from their Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. Anyhow, he's describing how people would be were they to know, be aware of reality. They would have attended wholly and sincerely to their life to come, and they would have shunned the world and reduced their involvement with it to the strictly necessary. Which had it been otherwise would have led to its ruination and the impairment of its, all of its affairs. So no one is ever going to be devoid of interacting with the means of creation. Every, we, all ha we all have to eat, we all need clothing, we all need basic necessities of life. But then there's degrees after that. And it is our Prophet which is that one of the wisdoms and why he chose the life that he chose, because he chose to remain poor. He chose to remain poor. Allah Ta'ala that offered him to be a prophet that was a king or to be a prophet that was a servant. A king prophet or a servant prophet. And our Prophet chose to be a servant prophet. And the scholars say about this is because is that he always wanted to be mudafile. He always wanted to be affiliated to his Lord. Because you don't say Malikullah, but you always say Abdullah. And so that our Prophet always wanted to be in a state where he was affiliated to his Lord, and he, always, he wanted to be Abdullah. That he was given the choice of having two mountains of gold travel with him wherever he went, and that he could take them as he pleased. But he refused them. And... He chose one day to eat so that he could give thanks and one day that he would not have food so that he could show patience. And also, one of the wisdoms relates to us is that because he lived the highest of all standards, then we know the standard whereby which that we can judge everything. So Imam al-Hassan al-Basri, who's coming here, and we see in a footnote here, he was the renowned follower who lived in Basra and was a great scholar, saint, and hadith narrator. He was brought up in the house of that lady Umm Salama, the Prophet's wife, and was very close to Sayyidina Ali bin Abi Talib. He grew up in this house, and he said that when he would lift his, put his hand up, he would touch the roof. And the Prophet only had basic necessities. Enough, the whole purpose of a house is to what? To have privacy, to cover yourself from the elements. So the Prophet just had enough to cover himself from the sun, to shade himself, to give himself privacy. That he didn't have walls like we have. Right? His walls you could hear very easily. You couldn't see in, but you could hear from outside uh, what was taking place inside the house. Because of that, they were just essentially like reeds. 
and that very simple. And uh, his door was a curtain. There wasn't a door with three locks and an alarm and all those types of things that we put on our homes. It was a curtain to the room of the Prophet Sallallahu in his chamber in which he lived. And we have narrations that indicate when he was praying at night in his house, he would have to tap, tap the blessed leg of his blessed wife, Sayyidah Aisha, in order for him to prostrate. In other words, when he was facing the Qibla, there wasn't enough room. He would have to tap her leg in order to prostrate. So if she was laying down and he was praying, that the living quarters of our Prophet were according to the bare necessities. So, that anyhow, he goes on to describe here that something about the nature of this world. And he says, but the divine will, he, is, he translates as the Mashiach al-Ilahiyah, the pre-existing decree, the Iradat al-Azaliyah, is that the world should prosper until its appointed time. And only then will God's will for the world cause it to be ruined and annihilated. So Allah Ta'ala willed for the world to prosper. And we know that Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala that has that given us this world um, and has caused it to be a source of a test for us. And that a important hadith is coming about how we that view the world. But there's a, another hadith that I wanted to share as well. Which, if you would tell a lot of Muslims this hadith, is that they would say, what collection is that in? What is the authenticity of that hadith? Because it, 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 it goes against this idea of the Protestant work ethic that we oftentimes have fallen into as Muslims. Which essentially you could sum it up by saying is that material success is a sign of spiritual success. Which is, we've never, ever believe that to be the case. Material success is not a sign of spiritual success. If anything, it might be the opposite, but we don't go as far to even say that. You could have someone who's very wealthy, who's a very righteous person. Right? But in and of itself, it is not a sign. The sign of someone's success is whether or not they are people of taqwa, and whether or not they are pious people. So in this hadith, that it's really the last part that we want to get to, but the first part is also very interesting. Ya yuhan nas, O people, man waliya minkum amalan, fahajaba babahu an di hajatil muslimin, hajaballahu, hajabahullahu an yalija babal jannah. SubhanAllah. And the Prophet said is that, O people, whoever is one of you, whichever one of you is in charge of a particular, that uh, is in charge of something, so there's a particular function that you're serving in, here in the context of the community. But then is that you've in a sense shut your door to the Muslims that are in need. Allah Ta'ala will shut the door for you to enter into paradise. In other words, is that if you put in a, in a situation where you're responsible for the community, you have to be there for them. You can't close your door on them and say, I'm not concerned about you. If you're in a position where you're responsible for the community, is that you have to be there for them. Now, obviously, in a balanced way, is that we know that there's balance in terms of this, and that we have the intention in our heart to help every single Muslim on the face of this earth. In fact, it's an intention that we can make, Ya Rab, 
if I had the wealth to clothe everyone, Muslim and non-Muslim alike who lived on the face of this earth, I would do it. Ya Rabbi, if I had the wealth to feed every Muslim and non-Muslim on the face of this earth, I would do so. We should make that intention every single day. And every single day, Allah will write in our scrolls the reward of having done so if we're sincere. In a very, very real way. In a very, very real way. Is that we intend to help every single person in the world, Muslim and non-Muslim alike, that were we to have been given the ability to do so. And then we help those that we can. So that's at the heart level. And then there's no doubt is that there will be people that in the process of trying to help everyone, we're all limited in our capacity. Is that if right now there was a hundred refugees that moved into our community that we were required to financially support, we probably couldn't be able, we would probably wouldn't be able to do that. Do we want to help them a hundred percent? Can we? Probably not. So we do what we can. In other words, is that there's a balance between wanting to help everyone and then only taking on what it is that you can bear. Anyhow, is that this hadith is someone who consciously that shuts the door on someone when they're in a position to help. And then, وَمَنْ كَانَتْ هِمَّةُ الدُّنْيَا حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ الْجَوَارِيَ And that whoever's that concern is one of this world is that Allah Taala that will prevent him from that manifestations of, of blessing in the next world. And then this is where it relates to this topic at hand. Because I have been sent with the destruction of this world. And I was not sent with its cultivation. Again, you hear that, you're like, wait a second, what does that mean? It does not mean that Islam is not about establishing that civilization. No, we led to the cultivation of some of the greatest civilizations ever. What it means is we don't cultivate the world for the sake of cultivating the world. We cultivate the world in all of the meanings of cultivation. Spiritually, religiously, psychologically, outwardly, physically, in all of its meanings from the standpoint of being the khulafa of Allah on this earth, is that we are the stewards and the custodians and the vice regents of Allah on earth. And so our cultivation of the earth is because we've been commanded to cultivate the earth from this standpoint. It's principled cultivation. What our Prophet is saying here is that it's not just for the sake of cultivating it, which is if you want to sum up that the, a lot of the greed that has precisely put us in the situation that we are in now on a worldwide scale is that it's this. It's cultivating the world for the sake of cultivating the world. Let's build it because we can build it. Let's invent it because we can invent it. Let's just research because it's a great thing to research. That's not how we do things. We do things purposefully. We think about the consequences of things. There might be things that we find out that you can do, and perhaps one of them is to split the atom, that hide that. That could cause destruction. We're not going there. But if people aren't living principled lives where they believe in Allah, what do you expect to happen? You're going to, that in the name of doing something that seems to be great, let's just do whatever we can with the earth. Let's just farm it until that there's nothing left of the soil. Let's just cut down all the forests and that plant cash crops and on and on and on. And, you know, that our dear brother 
Ramiz can speak into great detail about that. But we cultivate the world based upon the fact that we are khulafa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this earth. And again, this is, this is actually tilling the world, tilling the fields on earth, but also when we build businesses, when we that build civilization, we do so purposefully. And we have to be very careful in this conversation because sometimes we get hung up in wanting to make the claim that somehow is that we caused the Renaissance in the West. And we got to be very, very careful with that. Because we are not responsible for what has happened in the modern world. Is that the departure and the eclipse of the intellect and everything that led to, that started during that early period of the, that Renaissance and led to the, that scientific revolution and led to that, uh, that the Enlightenment and so forth, that is not our, that is not on our hands. And alhamdulillah, it's not. If it was, we would be in big trouble. Because the destruction that came from that, I mean, just imagine if you were in, if you, if, if the Industrial Revolution was on your hands. Do people realize right, the destruction? I listened to lectures and read about this. People have no idea the destruction that came from the Industrial Revolution. We think of it as this unmitigated good that everyone's for and so forth. But there's a whole other side of the story. There's a lot of people that lost their lives. There's a lot of people that suffered, right, in order for us to reach this point. And um, we look at things very differently. So this point, I know it's a contentious issue, right, uh, but we have to be balanced. We cultivate the world. We build civilization, but how, principally? And we build civilization knowing that we could die in the next moment. And we do so that, what our prophets say, plant a seed, even if you know Yom Al-Qiyam is what's going on. Why? Because we do so principally. So even if we know that what I'm, not going to, what I'm going to do, I'm not going to live to see its fruit because the world's going to end tomorrow, we still cultivate. Right. So that this is how we understand this hadith of our Prophet and some of these others that are coming. Uh, and so he says, since this is the case, al-hikmat al-baligha, the profound wisdom has ordained that most people remain unaware of the realities of things and steer a course away from them. This leads them to build for the world, attend to it, and accumulate its vanity so that they can turn away from the hereafter and forget about it. So that's how we understand that. That's the, some of the prerequisites for correct cultivation of the world. A warning about all this comes in the hadith that says, This world is the home of those who are without home. And um, that uh, in the wealth of those who are without wealth, it is amassed by those without reason. And again, it doesn't mean that we just give away all of our possessions. What it means is, is that everything that we do, we do so consciously. And we do so responsibly. And there's a beautiful explanation of this hadith as a footnote. The home of the Muslim is paradise. This is why he should consider himself a stranger or a passerby in this world, as says another hadith. On the other hand, the disbeliever has no home other than this world. For he has nothing better to look forward to. Again, in the hereafter, the believer will come into his everlasting possessions in paradise, whereas the disbeliever will lose whatever was in his possession in this world. So the key is, is that we be fully engaged while being simultaneously fully detached. 
How do you do that? That requires training. Fully engaged. Is that we, every day of our life, want to think about how can we help everyone who lives in this world. While at the same time, every breath we take, we're ready to meet our Lord. If we could get there or even get close to being there, ooh. If you had a critical mass of people like that, the entire world would change on these people's hands. Absolutely. Change comes from people of sifat, of character traits. Undoubtedly. If we could be there, is that the world would be changed on the hands of these types of people. And this is the way that the companions were. The companions is a lot that they didn't have, but they had that. As a result, they were the greatest catalyst of change in human history. That after the prophets and the messengers, Al Hassan al Basra said, Were it not for the fools, the world would never have prospered. Another one of our virtuous predecessors, may God have mercy on him, said, The son of Adam was created a fool. Were it not for that, he would never have been, were it not for that, he would never have been contented with only this life. What he's pointing to is the vast majority of people realize they're all going to die, but experientially they don't ever think they're going to die. I have, you know, family members that would tell me, I'm going to live till I'm a hundred years old. Like, inshallah. Right? But even if you did live to a hundred, like, even if you live to, live to a thousand, you're still going to die. It's going to happen. So we're foolish in that sense is that there's certain things that we know a lot refer to death in the Quran as yaqeen. Mm-hmm. Worship the Lord until certainty comes to you. Death. Until death comes to you. We're all certain about our death. No matter how sophisticated we become in trying to freeze people and postpone it, death will come eventually, and that's all there is to it. And these people that are that actively trying to that approach death as if it's something that can be manipulated in your DNA and create everlasting life is the most foolish of all people. These are the people that, subhanAllah, is that just when they think they have power over everything, they're going to be proven to be completely and utterly wrong. And they're going to really, really regret the way that they spent their life. Challenging Rabbul Alameen. If you challenge the Lord of the Worlds, you will be completely destroyed you will be destroyed and you brought about your own destruction as a result of that divine mercy singles out a few only a few servants for perfect awareness kamal al-yaqadha and at-tafattan perspicacity this fancy word regarding the realities of things they're the ones who realize those truths and are in consequence entirely shun the world and concentrate on God and hereafter these are rare individuals few in every time and place Meditate on this fact as it deserves for it is precious and underneath it are matters more precious still and God knows best. A lot of details could be spoken about this as he indicates. What is he trying to point to here? Is that there are special people on this work, on the face of this earth that are entirely devoted to their Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it's by, through the existence of these people is all of the other affairs of creation that are in order. And that Imam al-Haddad refers to them in a line of poetry when he says, Where these people, these very special people are entirely devoted to Allah, not to be amongst creation, is that the mountains and the earth would have been destroyed from people's sins. And so that, لَوْلَا شُيُّ وَالْسِبْيَانْ رُتَّعْ وَالْبَهَايَمْ رُتَّعْ لَصَبَّ عَلَيْكَ مَنْ عَذَابَ صَبَّ 
We're not to be for the elderly people bowing in prayer. And for the children that nursing and for the animals grazing, punishment would have been poured out upon you. In other words, is that there's things in creation that ward off from us the wrath of our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala, which is brought about by people's heedlessness and not to create a doomsday-like situation. But there are certain people in creation that are the means of the preservation of the creation, that are means of the warding off of tribulations from people. And our Prophet indicated in the hadith, whoever says, and in closing, because I know it's time for Mughrib, whoever seeks forgiveness for the male and female believers 27 times, in the morning and the evening. Very simple. The hadith says, Man and And in the narration it says, 25 or 27 times, in the morning and the evening, is that that person, that yukun mimma yustajab lahum dua wa that uh, that person will be from those whose prayers are accepted wa yurzaqu bihi ahlul ard and the people on the earth receive provision through him so two things is that what are you doing literally it takes a minute to say astaghfirullahal mu'minin minat astaghfirullahal mu'minin minat you're seeking forgiveness for the male and female believers 27 times in the morning and the evening. We should all do that as a whip, as an invocation. And our Prophet said is that whoever does that, his prayers will be accepted and he will be from the people who are a source for other people to receive provision in the earth. Which is an amazing thing to think about that. You're a means for other people to receive the risk right, by doing that. And this points to what Imam Haddad is mentioning here, is that there's a wisdom in Allah Ta'ala creating the shahwa, desire. Were it not to be for desire, we wouldn't be wearing nice clothes, we wouldn't be getting to eat nice foods, we wouldn't be able to have nice carpets, we wouldn't be able to experience a lot of this world. There's a wisdom in Allah Ta'ala creating desire, and this gets back to this idea of certain things were created that are manifestations of His wisdom, subhanahu wa ta'ala, from our perspective, though, from a religious perspective, that we need to interact with creation in a principled fashion, putting everything in its proper place, but recognizing that there are people like this that exist, and that we should strive to be like them at very least, is that we should all love them so that we can that live in a way that is pleasing to Allah Ta'ala in this world. May Allah Ta'ala give us tawfiq. Uh, normally we read from men in the universe, a little carried away in the commentary. May Allah Ta'ala give us tawfiq in all of our different affairs. Bless us. And may we be people who truly cultivate this earth in a way that is pleasing to our Lord subhanahu wa ta'ala and may actualize to us and in us our servitude to him subhanahu wa ta'ala and blessed to be true khulafa of Allah tabarak wa ta'ala and the meaning intended by him tabarak wa ta'ala here on this earth and we follow in the footsteps of our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam he adorn our hearts with everything that is good and ward off from us everything that is evil Allahumma protect us from all different destructive vices whereby which is that we bring about your wrath your Arham of Rahmeen and bless us to adorn ourselves with everything every virtue of the heart that brings about your good pleasure Allah Ta'ala give us tawfiq in all our different affairs wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam 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 wa sallam